Welcome. Welcome, everyone, to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. Well, not that far around the political spectrum, from the center left to the center right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by Damon Linker of The Week, who's actually here in person this week, we're happy to report, Linda Chavez, Senior Fellow at the Niskanen Center, Bill Galston is away this week, but we are delighted to welcome David Priest, COO of the Lawfare Institute, author, academic, and former CIA officer. Welcome, all of you. Glad you could all be here. Very happy to be here in person. All right. Glad to see you finally. Yeah. <laughs> and happy to join all of you. I'm sorry I missed Bill, but yeah. I'll see him over at Brookings. Excellent. So we had an off-off year election this week, and the results were disappointing for Republicans. Democrats took control of both houses of the Virginia legislature, making what had been a purple state pretty firmly blue. A Democrat Andy Bashir narrowly defeated incumbent Republican Governor Matt Bevin in Kentucky, a state Trump had won by 30 points in 2016. And Democrats made gains in key districts in Pennsylvania, a swing state. In Delaware County, Pennsylvania, all five county council seats will now be held by Democrats. This is the first time this has happened since the Civil War. All right, this is good news for Democrats looking forward to 2020, but there are some flies in the ointment. From my point of view, as a conservative, some of these Democrats uh, have told the Philadelphia Inquirer and others that uh, they are very eager for the party to move even further left. Um, uh, and then there is the matter of elections and legitimacy, and that's where I want to bring you all into a discussion. Um, so Matt Bevin, uh, Kentucky governor, lost by about 5,000 votes. He is not conceding. Uh, he wants to have a re-canvas of the vote. And this reminds me of what Stacey Abrams did in 2018, also contesting the validity of her uh, loss. And uh, most famously, of course, President Trump declined to say in 2016 whether he would abide by or respect the results of the election. Uh, if he were not the winner, he refused to say. And then um, even after his victory, he challenged the legitimacy of his own election, claiming that millions of illegals had voted. So are we trending toward a delegitimization of election results in this country? Linda? Well, I think we definitely are, and I think we've been on that trajectory for a while now, and it's not entirely, as you suggested, uh, a problem of the right. Uh, the left also uh, gets involved when it's uh, in their interests. And I sort of harken back to the days in 1960 uh, when Richard Nixon who famously, you know, really did have a legitimate gripe about Cook County in uh, Illinois and whether or not that uh, was rigged and it had tipped it uh, in JFK's favor. But he thought it was in the best interests of the country to abide by the results of that election. And it really is the broader problem, uh, I think, Mona, and that's the problem of trust. We don't have trust anymore in our major institutions. And this is a severe problem for a democracy. Can I just, uh, before we go to Damon, uh, if you'll forgive me, I just have to remind us all of that great story from 1960. Um, Joseph P. Kennedy, 
supposed to have said, this is too good to check, supposed to have said regarding the West Virginia primary where he was paying for votes that uh, he was willing to pay $50 a vote, but uh, that they shouldn't go overboard because he refused to pay for a landslide. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a great line. Um, But I I agree with what Linda was saying. It definitely is an issue having to do with um, a lack of faith in our institutions, but it's also a function of our polarizing public opinion that if you believe that the other party winning is a kind of existential threat to everything that you think matters, then your side winning is the only legitimate one that can happen. And so the stakes are enormous. And I think what you end up with is this kind of battle to the death over just a few votes. And, um, There is no one around to take the Nixon position anymore and say, you know what, maybe I could ask for a recount, uh, but it wouldn't be good for the country. So I'll sit it out and come back and, you know, try again in a few years, as Nixon did, and he won. Um, so, uh, you know, people aren't willing to do that anymore because the thought is that if, if my side loses, uh, somehow the, the country is, is going to crumble. Uh, and that isn't a very healthy outlook for a liberal democracy where you're supposed to have an attitude that you have of the peaceful exchange of power between parties and you're willing to lose to fight another day. Yeah, uh, arguably Richard Nixon's finest moment in his career, I think, um, agreeing not to contest that election for the sake of not putting the country through it. Um, So, David, people certainly have this perception that everything rests on the results of elections, that it's life or death, it's Flight 93, et cetera. But, um, But that's not right, right? I mean, it's not, it's, it's, it's a concoction. It is and it isn't. The funny thing, listening to this now that everything is a Flight 93 election, of course, people didn't use the term Flight 93 before 2001, but that rhetoric was there in campaigns. Campaign rhetoric has always been, this is the most important election in our history. The future of our children depends on it. The legacy of our forefathers depends on it. And yet when the election comes, usually people will say, all right, I lost. Let's pick it up and try again, either as a party or as an individual. But I go back to an election like, and I wasn't there for this one, I will admit, for 1876, (laughs) quite a while ago. But that was an election where there were, let's be polite and say serious irregularities Mm -hmm. involving probably the changing of votes and canvassing boards, bribes, whatever it took to get to that electoral vote that ended up putting Rutherford B. Hayes in the presidency. But Samuel Tilden had a very good case as the Democrat that he did win on the merits of the election and only fraud took it to his opponent. He had his supporters basically chanting, you know, Tilden or blood, saying we need to take back our government. Let us have a swearing in ceremony of the rightful president. And they were really close to doing it. They only had one problem, and that was Samuel Tilden. He said, no, it's it's not worth a revolution. We just finished a civil war not that long ago. And yes, this election does have important issues at stake. But he said, as Nixon did in a different form, the system is more important than any individual victory. What I think may be different now is the perception that a loser in an election may feel, I may not get another chance. Because things are so tense now, if I'm a Trumpian candidate and I lose, is this the top of the wave? Is this the last time I'm going to get a chance? So 
even in the Kentucky case, you may think, I have no chance of ever getting elected again. My only chance is to contest this election and go through the re-canvassing. Individual races have been like that before, but as a trend where everyone who loses thinks the other side is out to get me and to make it impossible to win again, I could see this becoming the norm rather than the exception. But, you know, I, I would just sort of push back a little bit that, mm-hmm. uh, on Stacey Abram. I mean, I actually, I think that was the lowest point for her. And I actually admire her. I think she uh, ran a very good campaign. I think there was a lot of, you know, nasty stuff that went on, including efforts to suppress the vote. Um, but I thought her refusing to concede um, did not speak well about her and uh, the future. And, you know, I look forward to 2020. And, you know, it may be I'm I'm adamantly opposed to the reelection of Donald Trump, but he may win. And um, I don't want to think that those of us who've, you know, fought the good fight and tried our best um, will say we're not willing to accept the vote of the American people. And, and as I say, I think it's just so dangerous. Uh, and we have to be a little careful here. I, I think we are. We live in very precarious times right now. So this is where, you know, another example of so many, where the norms and traditions and the sort of honorable nature of politics are, you know, it's informal, but it's so important that it, we've always had almost always had candidates who once they were the loser say well we fought the good fight and the audience and they say I want to congratulate the winner and their supporters say no no and they say yes yes now now you know we we're not going to boo the winner it was a fair fight and blah blah they ran a great campaign those things they're they're cliches but they're incredibly important for democratic legitimacy and once they begin to unravel and uh, and and Trump was one of the people, not the only, but one of the main people who's made it his business to unravel those kinds of traditions. Um, it's it's extremely um, it's extremely dangerous. Damon. You <laughs> well, I just to... wanted to jump in that I I think that one one thing that's really testing our institutions is the fact that our divisions as a society are are very evenly matched, and they have been for quite a long time now. So that. You know, Bush v. Gore came down to this razor wire of uh, of an outcome with actually the person who won the most votes total slightly lost in the Electoral College. And that what you now then, of course, in 2016, Trump actually loses the popular vote this time by 2.9 million votes. And there was a really alarming article that's kind of sent shockwaves through political analysis this week from Nate Cohn at the New York Times earlier this week using looking at polling data at in several states to show that it is possible obviously we don't know for sure but it is conceivable that Trump could win the electoral college again and this time lose by even more 5 million 5 yeah. million possibilities and and it you can easily see how if he manages to just barely win all those kind of blue wall formerly blue wall midwestern states that used to go to the democrats so he then has a lock on the electoral college and then he loses california new york new england and all of those blue states by even larger margins yeah. than last time right. you know he lost uh he lost california he only got 31 percent of the vote what if he gets 25 percent yeah. of the vote this time could yeah. easily happen and in that case you're not it's not like the case with uh with bevan and kentucky where you have a, a kind of 
more kind of classical, very, very close finish where there are many laws in the country. I don't know if Kentucky actually has one, but in a lot of places, if it's within a certain narrow percentage, you have an automatic recount. Mm -hmm. And that seems fair to most people, I think. But mm -hmm. what we're dealing with at the national level now is this other situation where it's not a close race. It's that actually the loser wins. And I know that's contentious because we have the Electoral College. It's in the Constitution. We should abide by that institution. But it clearly was never designed to do this repeatedly, to not just amplify the winner, but to but to kind of flip it and, and actually yep. mm -hmm. give the so-called loser the victory and that and that it could go even further and ever further. It's, it's very dangerous. Yeah, that's, speaking of a crisis of legitimacy. Yeah. That would yeah, be one. Absolutely. I mean, because it would be, what, the third time in mm -hmm. how many in, years? In six elections. Yeah. That, and, uh, and to make it worse, because we're not depressing enough right now, <laughs> Yeah, that's all assuming a, what I'll call a reasonable, rational election. And we see a lot of signs that we won't see that. The interference in 2016, there's been very little done to actually prevent that in 2020. And in fact, we see emboldened efforts by other countries and perhaps non-state actors to try to, if nothing else, just muddy the waters, not necessarily to tilt that district in Wisconsin that will make the difference and create that electoral college scenario you're talking about, but merely to raise questions of illegitimacy, to put out their misinformation about missing ballots, changed ballots mm -hmm. all over the place. Mm -hmm. And what happens then? Then you have an election, which maybe is close. Maybe it's not that close, but where everybody is questioning the result anyway. And that erodes our norms and our trust in each other even more. And, and then there is, of course, the even further nightmare scenario, and that is <laughs> that Trump loses and says that it was stolen and, um, mm -hmm. you know, tries to essentially negate the the effects of the election. I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility. It isn't. It isn't. It's, it's, it's what used to be fiction. I remember reading those books decades ago of these political thrillers where the mm -hmm. president said, okay, you voted me out, but the election was illegitimate and I'm not leaving. And it comes down to the Secret Service, who for some <laughs> right. reason are, are paying attention to the still president in his mind and not their oath. And they're squaring off against the army marching across the Potomac on right. the bridge. And I never thought this would be a scenario we'd have to consider. I still don't think it's likely. Not <laughs> likely, but... But part, part of my mind always wondered when, when Jim Mattis, a man of honor and respect across the board, but certainly within the rank and file of the U.S. military, when he took a job working for a man that he must have known was not the kind of commander-in-chief that we'd ever witnessed before, part of me always wondered... Was he in that job taking the kinds of things that no other secretary of defense would have taken? Was he holding out for that ultimate scenario where if they needed someone to do the unthinkable and then to pay the consequences afterwards and say, yes, I did it. It was wrong, but it needed done. Would he actually be holding out for that scenario where someone that the troops would respect would say, we are enforcing the Constitution? We hear that in countries all over the world and we laugh and say, oh, the military enforcing the Constitution and resetting the political landscape. Wow, I never thought I'd think that about the United States. Well, of course, 
It's one of the things that has distinguished us throughout our history is that um, we have a very, very bright line between civilian and military leadership, mm -hmm. thank God, and we have not ever wanted or needed the military to enforce the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we look at the history of most countries and empires in the world. In Rome, the Praetorian Guard decided who the well. emperor would be. Um, and uh, might made right, and it is um, it is it is scary to think what can happen when mm. the legitimacy of elections is not respected, or is called into question, or is tampered with in any serious way. And so that's what uh, mm. that's what we're looking at. Um, let me just uh, direct us to the um, the other big poll that came out this past week from the New York Times in Siena about swing voters in the uh, swing voters in in key states and uh, the story was that a tiny sliver of the electorate could um, could determine the outcome and these are people who um, uh, are um, open to going either way uh, they tend to vote mostly be men women seem to have made up their minds more um, and uh, they have all different views, but here's something they're fairly clear about, according to the New York Times. Uh, this is what they would like from a Democrat. Uh, by 82 to 11 percent, they, they would prefer one who promises to find common ground over one who promises to fight for a progressive agenda, and they prefer a moderate over a liberal, 75 to 19 percent. Um, so I guess my question to you, starting with you, Damon, is... Do primary voters, the Democratic primary voters, take that into account? Some people say they did with John Kerry. You know, electability, thinking longer term rather than just my heart's desire is Elizabeth Warren, but I want to win, so maybe I'll vote for someone else. Well, I, I do think that the Democratic Party is simply more ideologically diverse than the Republicans, at least at the, in present. So you do have a real divide between kind of moderates, conciliatory, uh, uh, a, a desire, again, to get along, to be a kind of establishment party um, rather than an insurgency from the populist left. But that, then you do have the populist left faction of the party that especially <clears throat> because they're dominant by activists have a lot of influence in the party in the age of Twitter, where they all have a little digital megaphone. And you see that dynamic playing itself out. But in the primaries, where you have uh, Warren and Sanders, obviously with the activist left, but then you have you know, Biden trying to, you know, in, in favor of a kind of Obama restoration. And now Buttigieg seems to be surging after he very dramatically kind of redefined himself in the last debate as a centrist. Um, so clearly the party is pretty evenly divided. And I would I, I would also add that this there is a real difference between the Republicans and the Democrats in this moment in the sense that Republicans benefit enormously by polarization because when the two parties hate each other, the Republicans get united in their hatred of the left and they show up to vote and they and the Republicans need every single vote because they're very narrow in many states. That means that their votes are extremely efficient because if the Republicans win a bunch of states by 50 50 percent plus one, that means 40, 50 percent minus one of all the Democrats in that state 
get no say in the final outcome. They're negated. Whereas the Democrats are this kind of big, floppy, uh, non-efficient mass where it's divided uh, on many uh, trajectories. You have the ideology, but then you also have region, race, gender, all these differences within the party that make it actually quite difficult for one candidate to kind of unite them all. They somehow, Democrats, you keep hearing, uh, Democrats need to win back kind of moderate Midwestern white voters. They also have to energize uh, black voters who loved Obama and showed up in huge numbers, but then kind of sat out 2016. And then you have the activists on the left who are energized and might stay home if, if Biden's the nominee. So you you see how like the Democrats somehow need to to uh, to unify something that might not be able to be unified. Um, so it's a very different problem for the two parties. And I don't know what the solution is. So um, pursuing that a little bit, and David, you can jump into this. The um, the polarization model didn't work for Republicans when Obama was in the White House. And it surprised me, frankly. I mean, in 2012, I thought, boy, what more do Republicans need than the incentive of denying Obama a second term to turn out? Well, it turned out they needed more than that uh, because that wasn't enough. And a lot of Republicans stayed home. Um, so um, is, it, is it something unique to Trump? Is it, the, is it the age? Is it Twitter? Is it social media? you know, whatever. What, what do you think is going on? You know, there's a, there's a lot unique to Trump, no doubt. Mm -hmm. But some of those trends ha have been there in some cases, slightly submerged under the waves, in some cases out on top. The dynamic now, however, is really interesting in the, the polling that comes out. You see numbers about the voters who say, I will never vote for Trump. And it is incredibly high, higher than I've seen in any other election. Even among Republicans saying, I will never vote for Obama. The numbers are higher now for the uh, voters saying, nothing could get me to vote for Trump. That's interesting. But they are not over 50% in swing states. No. And those are numbers against a generic Democratic right. opponent. Yeah. And everything changes when it's a choice. Yep. Do you like Trump? No, not really. I don't like this about his strategy. I don't like this about his policy. I don't like this about his style. So I don't think I would ever vote for him. And then all of a sudden, it's him or Elizabeth Warren. Right. And people find things, whether in policies or in personality, and they say, you know, I said I would never vote for him, but I didn't mean when it was against somebody else. Yeah. That, that is why focusing on the polls so much now, and I think the Democrats feeling complacent about the election, saying, look at those numbers. Yeah. We've got it in the bag. It's going to be almost impossible for Trump to win. Well, it really depends on who you nominate. Now, that does not mean that Democrats will go with a strategy of, okay, we will just take what the polls show us who's the most electable against Trump. That is perhaps a winning strategy, but that also presupposes a, an election campaign where nothing changes. And Trump has a way of reshuffling the deck in the middle of the game that would change things. So I don't think that's necessarily a winning strategy. Also, that's not a strategy that appeals to swing voters, which is... Let's do everything we can to get Trump out of office. I think a strategy that appeals to those swing voters you cited is someone who says and projects a return to normalcy. I mean, that was a winning election strategy going back 100 years. That was a very boring <laughs> slogan, but it worked. And I think that is a campaign that works. And that is different than saying anything against Trump. That's basically saying, and you've mentioned Mayor Pete. 
I think that's the lane he's carving out is saying in my very mannerism, as well as where I'm taking my policy publicly, Mm -hmm. in my very mannerism, I'm saying, let's hit reset. Let's get back to a civil discourse. And he's not saying it, but he's implying, you may disagree with my policies. That's fine. And I think in a wink and nudge moment, he would say, because I'm probably not going to get all of them passed anyway. No president does. But let's return to civil discourse where we actually try to find ways to include people in the political system rather than castigating them. There's something important there, and I'm not sure it's picking up anywhere but Iowa right now yeah, for and you Mayor know, Pete. What is very interesting about that is that that is a role that a woman is absolutely sort of just constitutionally primed to play, mm-hmm. you know, as a woman, as a mother. You know, you're always trying to bring people together. You're trying to get the kids to stop fighting. You're trying to get to be reasonable. Elizabeth Warren has shown absolutely no interest in playing that role. And yet that is the only way she has a chance come the general election. And I still, if I were putting money on who's going to be the nominee, I guess I'd probably be putting it on Warren about now. Um, And that's going to cause a huge problem for voters like me who, you know, would like to be able to vote for the Democratic candidate, but she is just sort of too far out there. And it's not just her policies. Her policies, first of all, she's not going to get them through probably. Um, So, you know, I can always take comfort in that. Three Democrats, just just sorry mm -hmm. to interrupt, but just to make, to Mm -hmm. reinforce your point. Three Democrats have already said Said that they would not vote to uh, right. end the filibuster, which for legislation, which means that she's not going to get she's it not going to get right. through. Yeah, she's not so. going to get. It. But it's the, it's her manner. It's you know this sort of hyperkinetic behavior when she's mm-hmm. jumping on the stage and trying to show that she's really not in uh, septuagenarian, <laughs> right? <laughs> like like the rest of us. And and you know it's it's this absolute inability to try to you know listen to the other side and say you know okay. You have, uh, you know, a difference with me, but let's sit down and see if we can work it out and come to some place where we can agree on what, you know, what we can agree on. And she just doesn't show any inclination in that. Lindy, Linda, let me ask you about that, Mm -hmm. because do you think there's a possibility of a pivot? And maybe she is not Mm -hmm. able personally to pivot, but perhaps that is the lesson of the last election. Look at what Donald Trump did to a field of Republican candidates. Uh, all of whom had more experience than he did in governing and in campaigning. Mm -hmm. But the fighter mentality won. The American people, whether we like Mm -hmm. it or not, see politics more as reality TV now than they ever have. And part of them just wanted to be entertained. Elizabeth Warren, in her mannerisms, Mm -hmm. in her attitude, seeks to be that kind of entertainer in a different flavor, but an entertainer. Yeah, she does. Is she even capable of pivoting back in a general election to be more of who you say? Well, she hasn't shown an ability to do that, and that's what worries me. And if I thought that, you know, she realizes that she needs to do this to secure the election and come the general election, she's going to sound a lot more reasonable and she's going to talk about compromise. um, But I don't see that, and I don't see her kind of playing that role. I mean, you know, ironically, Hillary Clinton was much more adept at that. Hillary Clinton, well, and she, you know, Hillary learned from from a master, from Bill, in terms of, you know, trying to seek out that uh, way to talk to uh, to people um, who might not be entirely on your side. Um, but I don't know. I don't see Elizabeth Warren doing it, and it seems to me a personality thing as much as any. I think of her as if she's going to be up there, she's going to cry to duke it out. 
uh, with Donald Trump. I actually think that the the age of pivoting is probably over Mm -hmm. uh, because of digital media. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like she's she how many events and debates has she had where she's gone on the record in favor of this laundry list of very expensive policies. So if she tries to pivot, she then looks like she's a slippery, lying politician who can't be trusted. Although Judge is pivoting right now. That's true. But he didn't he didn't put specific policies on the line except for like um, the, the thing about packing the Supreme Court. And the Electoral College. And yeah. the Electoral <laughs> College. Those were the two. Elizabeth Warren has about a dozen. Yeah. And so you have the problem of, of it looking shifty and untrustworthy but then there's also the fact that uh, you you have the, the polarization going on where where the, Warren is doing well because she has a lot of energy from the Democratic base. If she pivots there they're going to go crazy and start mm-hmm. attacking her from the left. And you could have a left-wing challenger like Jill mm-hmm. Stein uh, jump uh, jump in. And, and then we're, we're kind of doing it over again like uh, in 2016 where we have the, uh, the left of center vote divided. So it, it's, a, it's a very, very tough uh, position to be in. This, uh, this may be a semantic uh, difference more than anything, but I don't see Elizabeth Warren as, a, as an entertainer so much as I do see her as a populist politician. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I think she is very similar to Trump. Um, they, they choose their villains. In his case, it was you know foreigners and minorities and immigrants. And in her case, it's evil corporations and billionaires banks. and banks. Mm-hmm. But it's your problems are the result of those bad people, and I will fight those bad people on behalf of the virtuous American mm-hmm. ordinary person. And that's her message, and she hammers that again and again. On some things, there is literal overlap with Trump and mm-hmm. Warren, like on trade, where they both think that protectionism is great. And um, and so that's that's one thing that I think is is worrisome about her is that it far from getting us away from Trumpian politics, it just is a different flavor of Trumpism. Now, of course, she isn't uh, her personal behavior is not reprehensible. Do not he doesn't have his personal problems. Although her personal problems are also, I think, somewhat significant. Um, it's not an accident that Trump has laid off the whole. Pocahontas thing lately. He's holding that in reserve. That's definitely going to come back. And that is something, it's not just a right-wing talking point, though it is that. But it is the kind of thing that I'm guessing millions of people who currently say they support her do not know about. Can I just briefly jump in and to say, Warren makes me very nervous too. Um, However, uh, I would want to say a word in her defense, which is that she is a populist. There is parallel with Trump in that respect, with, you know, pointing to kind of the enemy on the other side who I will defend you against. But she does know a lot. And that is a difference still between the Republicans and the Democrats. The Republicans have kind of impulses. But, uh, you know, Trump, when he came in, he kind of knew what he wanted to do in general on trade and foreign policy and immigration and so forth. But he didn't really know how to do any of it or what would work. He's never met a policy intellectual in his life. The right uh, has sort of given up on on caring about such details at the level of electoral politics, whereas Elizabeth Warren has spent her her entire career studying public policy policy and economics and regulation. 
population. And so she actually kind of knows how to do stuff in a okay. way that Republicans no, I'm don't. pushing back. No, yep. but yeah, it's, it, it's, I'll get in sorry, line behind David. you. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, coming right after. Um, <clears throat> so in, yeah, knowledge is better than ignorance, I'll concede, yeah. But uh, the kind of knowledge that you would need to do the level of of regulation that Warren proposes for our entire economy does not exist outside the mind of God. (laughs) She wants to regulate absolutely everything, and no one has that kind of knowledge. That's the reason it's so unsuccessful. That's the reason markets are more efficient. Obviously, there's a place for regulation, but she wants to radically, radically expand it. She's never met any industry that she didn't want to control. And um, and so her knowledge is not helpful here. I mean, it is. And it well, does come off. I, I have to agree with Joe Biden this week. It does come off as elitist. I mean, there is that college professor. But I'm going to push back against you a little bit, Mona, on the Pocahontas thing. OK. Um, I'm a Westerner. i born in New Mexico, grew up in Colorado. Oklahoma's a neighbor. Uh, everybody I know from Oklahoma thinks they are Native American, that they have Native American background. It just happens to be a phenomena of that community. And so the fact that she grew up with these stories, I actually believe her. I think she did. Yeah, but they didn't get professorships at Penn and Harvard by claiming to be a minority, which she did. Well, there's, there's some actual pushback on that, too. It's not, it's not really clear. That, uh, that she benefited um, from uh, from that. But I you think. know that Donald Trump will, well, he make will it say so. it so. Yeah, uh, of course yes. he'll say it so. But yes. I don't know. I just don't yeah. think that is as big an issue as some people do. And I just I don't know, didn't, okay. didn't bother me that. I'm gonna much. push. Okay. I want to push back against everyone because okay. <laughs> uh, it just seems like fun. Yeah. <laughs> the, the the point of having a and let's just focus on dem, focus on Democratic candidates. A Democratic candidate who is honestly putting out more policy plans more detailed policy plans than all of her competition combined. And there's a lot of competition this year. But she's putting out all these plans, and she does come across as thoughtful. She does come across as someone who has studied public policy issues, grappled with them, thought with them, tried to come up with solutions for them for years. I can think of some other Democratic candidates like that. There was Stevenson in the 50s, uh, McGovern to some extent, Jimmy Carter digging down into the issues, Michael Dukakis. Um not all of them lost every election, but they came pretty close. <laughs> yes. And I do wonder whether intellectually we, we say we want someone like that. We say we want someone who studied the issues. I'm personally a big fan of George H.W. Bush, and he did put his head down and, and study issues well. And I respected that. But I've got to say that there might be a difference there between what people say they want and then what motivates them when they vote. And then it's maybe the more the tribalism that you were talking about earlier So Warren maybe has all those boxes that would be nice. But when people look at her, and this isn't a women are described as unlikable and angry thing. I think it's just more her style doesn't work with the policy proposals. Donald Trump's style, for many people, works with the lack of policy proposals. And it's an unfortunate disconnect. But there's something there that means perhaps one of the best qualified candidates in terms of thoughtfulness, in terms of perhaps brain power just doesn't appeal to people the way that that kind of thing should. I, I agree. I mean, I my line on Warren is uh, I would like her a lot better if she had two very ambitious, smart plans and not 12. Yeah. yeah. Um, I like that. It's yeah. just too much. Okay. I'm, I'm going to spring this on you all. I just, just this minute decided to do this. Um, if you were a Democratic primary voter with this field, how would you vote uh, today? Linda? 
Well, my heart's with Joe Biden, but I think he's thinking I probably would go with Mayor Pete. Okay. David? Uh, Biden 15 years ago, Pete 15 years from now, or <laughs> Warren with only two plans. That's sort of where I <laughs> Wait, am no, at the no, moment. No, 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 no. That doesn't I, work. If I had to right now, it's a tough one. I mean, I've liked Pete, since he burst on the scene, uh, I think he's very smart. I do think he feels a little bit like a lightweight, like he hasn't quite done enough, isn't quite old enough. Um, so I am in a bind. And it, I mean, it's a joke, but it's true. I've never been a huge Biden fan, but Biden 15 years ago, totally against Trump would have yeah. been fine. I wouldn't have been the least bit worried. At his age, the way he's coming off, I really don't know if he can handle being president. And Pete, again, seems a little like lacking in the gravitas a little bit. So I don't know. I maybe if any, meeny, miny, mo in the booth, probably Mayor Pete. Mm -hmm. And yet I would say Joe Biden 15 years from now, not knowing anything about what that means. <laughs> uh, as, as never Trumpers would say, never Trump means never. So yes, Trump versus Biden, uh, J Joe Biden on his deathbed might still be the choice. Um, among among the candidates, it's hard to say as a Democratic primary voter, because uh, if we are not, we cannot put ourselves in those shoes. But so it's an unfair question. Oh, I was like, sorry. Now that you've said the question, though, I have to give an unfair answer. Uh, based on style, I mentioned earlier, I think Pete Buttigieg is doing a service to the country by showing someone, yes, even someone from, what is it, the fourth largest city in Indiana. <laughs> um, who has done these things in his life and at the age he's at says, yes, I could be a leader and let me show you how. And some polls, at least in Iowa, are showing it, it is actually clicking with people in a way that you would not have expected uh, before. And, and that is encouraging. That said, if the greatest threat to America now is the current president of the United States, then Joe Biden is the, the lever that I think people pull because they realize he is the most likely to bring people together together in the center to get those swing voters you identified, Mona, earlier, but to keep the Democratic coalition together and motivated to vote. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, as for me, I, I worry um, a bit about Biden's shakiness on the trail, too, um, and agree that, you know, 15 years ago, if, the, if, if you're 15 years younger, it wouldn't, wouldn't have been any problem. I'm not worried about him doing the presidential, the job of president, as much as I am worried about him doing the job of candidate hmm. against Trump, um, because whatever else you can say about Trump, he is energetic. Um, and um, and so that contrast would be would be worrisome in a in a general election matchup. Um, Let me push back one bit on that, sure. because I think we underestimate how much and honestly, how effectively Donald Trump will attack and essentially demonize anyone. I mean, imagine him running against a 37-year-old openly gay man as he campaigns across the South. Imagine him running against what he will call Pocahontas and making the case mm -hmm. that Linda says, well, maybe that's not true. Truth, in some yes, ways, doesn't matter on the trail. Trump. I think there's any candidate in that Democratic field, if I'm Donald Trump, I'm licking my lips saying, Oh, I can rip them apart. They're not going to they're not going to go to the depths that I will go to. So trying to game out whether Joe Biden is as effective on the campaign trail as someone else might be. Well, 
I think Trump's going to do a job on any of them. Mm. And I think actually Joe Biden would be fine in a debate if Trump would even agree to debate him, which, which I guess is, is not open. clear. Yes, yeah. not clear at all. Yeah. But um, I don't worry as much about uh, Biden on the campaign trail. And can I take my vote back? I want to go with Biden. Okay. I mean, I, okay. I, Biden is where my heart is. I just think that it's it seems such an uphill battle. If, if he can get beyond Iowa, New Hampshire, maybe, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I actually think he will not be a bad candidate. And I think in terms of everyone on the scene, he's the only one who is equipped to step into the presidency and do a decent job tomorrow. Okay. I, I will confess I like Amy Klobuchar, but I seem to be the one. So yeah. <laughs> no, I could I could definitely I could definitely be happy voting for her. Sure. It's just mm-hmm. I've sort of ruled her out because she can't seem to break she like two or three percent. Yeah. So I've yeah. I've already put her she'll be, into. She'll the... be the vice president on Biden's ticket if he gets very very possibly. Okay, um, moving to the uh, story of impeachment this week. Um, it was another week of shifting goalposts and craven climb downs for Donald Trump's Republican defenders. Uh, the Intelligence Committee began releasing transcripts that contain the kind of head spinning details that we are confronted with in the age of Trump. For example, uh, Marie Yovanovitch, uh, former ambassador uh, to Ukraine, uh, was uh, was told by uh, Mr. Sondland that if she wanted to keep her job, which she should have because she was eminently uh, qualified and, uh, and and was doing a great job, uh, that she should pr- publicly praise uh, President Trump. Uh, a lesson, by the way, that our al- enemies have learned and foreign leaders have learned that you, if you flatter the sky, sky's the limit. In any event... Um, so the Democrat, the Republicans are no longer saying that the whistleblower's account was secondhand and therefore just hearsay, and they're no longer saying there was no quid pro quo. And now they, some of them are saying, well, no harm, no foul, because he didn't actually hold up the aid. I mean, he tried to, but it eventually went through. Um, and uh, anyway, I, what I want to get to, though, is this uh, business about unmasking the whistleblower, because there's a, there's a direct parallel between the argument that they made uh, during the Mueller investigation, which was it was all about the Steele dossier. The Steele dossier had Democratic fingerprints. Therefore, the whole thing was tainted, fruit of the poisonous tree. The whole investigation was therefore illegitimate. And now they're attempting to do that with the whistleblower. They're saying, well, he's a Democrat. Apparently, he may be a Democrat. I don't know who he is. But, uh, but David, I'd like you to jump in on this because the, the reports are that that uh, the whistleblower is a Democrat. Um, and um, uh, what so so there are laws in this country to protect people who uh, who do what he did exactly because we want them not to be retaliated against we want them to feel free and unthreatened to report wrongdoing by government officials so yeah I would say he or she because I do not want to talk about the identity of the whistleblower okay. because it is protected by law and those people who are out there saying well I want to expose the name of the whistleblower even a senator who wants to say, I will put the name out there myself. And Don Jr. apparently has put it out. Yes, but the media hasn't reported it. There's a legitimate legal case. And we have issues, uh, I think, generally on the right side of history, why we have people elected to Congress who are able to speak their mind without retribution and punishment. However, when something is illegal, that, that should at least slow that person down. So the identity of the whistleblower is, at this point, completely irrelevant. Right. It, it does not matter in terms of the merits of the case, the president's actions. 
it would be akin to spell that out a little bit because all the witnesses have corroborated Mm -hmm. and and given first hand accounts. I don't even need to go to the witnesses. I need to go to what the White House itself released. Yeah, there you go. Which is the quasi transcript. (laughs) Right. 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 Will you do me a favor though? Yeah. Laid it out. Yeah. And and, and, right, exactly. And then the president in commentary afterwards essentially said, Yeah, of course I did. Right. That's that's it. Mm -hmm. People ask, Well, do you think that Sondland's testimony will be the smoking gun? Said you you have the smoking gun on a live video feed to the American people, (laughs) and now you're wanting to look at the serial number on the gun. You're wanting to get another camera angle on the gun. Whatever the analogy is, you're missing the point that the crime, if it is not in the legal sense, but the crime has been committed, the crime has been admitted to, the only defense left is what some of them are defaulting to, which is, well, yes, it happened, but we don't consider that high crimes and misdemeanors. I think that is a tough case, but because of the amorphous nature with which the founders wrote the um, criterion for impeachment, they can make that case, and they will have to stand on those grounds because there are no other grounds to stand on. The whistleblower at this point is irrelevant. The danger is, coming from the intelligence community myself, there is a separate law for protecting intelligence community whistleblowers because of the sensitive nature of the things that people in the community are privy to. There is a good reason for that, because people in the intelligence community who used regular mechanisms would probably inadvertently sometimes get information out there that shouldn't be, that harms national security. So there's this separate channel set up for doing it. This whistleblower followed the law. This whistleblower did what the whistleblower was supposed to do. This whistleblower was the opposite of Edward Snowden. And what happens if you out the person's name and punish them for doing so? You have just taken away all incentives for anybody who sees wrongdoing, either to report it or to avoid just going to the media and blurting out state secrets. Either one of those, those are bad news for America overall, regardless of what you feel about this particular case. In my mind, the attention on the whistleblower is the same kind of diversionary tactic, as you said, of the Steele dossier or of the line that never seemed to take 12 angry Democrats. Remember the president (sighs) Mm -hmm. tweeting that over and over again? At some point it was 13 or 17. He couldn't seem to keep track. But it didn't work in that case. And I'm wondering if we've passed the point where it would work in this case. Whether that person is a Democrat or not is actually also irrelevant. I have to say, I worked in the intelligence community. I worked with people sometimes for 18 hours a day fighting terrorists and other things. I did not know the political leanings of almost anyone I worked with. Mm -hmm. Even though I got to know them and their families very well, Politics never came up there. That's not the ethic of the place. Maybe they are a registered Democrat. Maybe they're a communist. Maybe they're a Nazi. I don't know what they are. And frankly, I don't care. If they were doing their job reporting wrongdoing according to the law, that should be protected. By the way, don't they get asked that in their security clearance if the they're communist, a communist or a Nazi? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the questions are now. At the in extremes, the old days, yes. I totally agree with everything you just said. I, I mean, I... I thought the the focus on the Steele dossier was ridiculous, but at least there was some kind of logical connection between well, there was this this you know this dossier was was released through BuzzFeed and and it was early on when we were looking into Russian meddling, so it seemed as if there maybe was some overlap that maybe the investigation was partly prompted by stuff in it that was never verified. So I didn't buy it, but at least there was some plausibility. The, mm-hmm. the whistleblower focus, I have total contempt for this. It's yeah. ridiculous. The most transparently cynical 
tactical diversionary tactic ever deployed. And the, as if, as you just as you just pointed out, the the fact that the president himself authorized the release of the redacted transcript yes. that proved the very point of what the whistleblower was alleging and then a parade of witnesses to verify it even further, many of whom actually heard the call and so therefore heard probably the even more incriminating passages of the phone call that were left out of the, of the semi-transcript. The whole thing is, is just absolutely ridiculous. But you're sort of missing the point here. Um, this is the way the Trump world operates. Oh, the I, fact I understand that. It, you know, that. Yeah, the <laughs> fact that it is ridiculous, the fact that the uh, identity of the whistleblower blower is irrelevant at this point, the fact that the president goes on television and lies every time he opens his mouth about the whistleblower, the fact that someone like Lindsey Graham can say, well, of course there was no quid pro quo because they're too incompetent to be able to figure out a quid pro quo. All of this is really just feeding into the lines that they feed their people so that their people can say, He's still my president, no matter what, no matter what he does. I, I watched a, a little segment. I think it was Allison Camerata from the morning show on CNN who did a focus group with a group of women. And they were describing whether or not they would stick with these were all pro-Trump women. And she said, if the president literally shot somebody on Fifth Avenue, would you still support him? Two of the women said, well, we want to know what he shot them for. Why did he shoot them? Yeah, that person must probably have, deserved it. Yeah, must have been right. a good reason. Uh, yeah, must have been a good reason. And and that's what that's what's so terrifying about this is there actually what? there's a group of people out there who doesn't matter what he does. Well, well what what but, matters to me and and drives me crazy is that there are our media outlets yeah, that are thought of as mainstream media outlets. Yes, where like where I'll name names: Molly Hemingway yeah. uh, yep. from the Federalist, who's on Fox News pretty much every single day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pushing this line over and over again, and you Laura just, Ingram you, has Laura her own Ingram. show. Yeah, well, of course, <laughs> and and you know, I I always give people the benefit of the doubt to assume, like, well, you know, in your private life, you're probably a nice person. Mark Hemingway, her Molly Hemingway's husband, seems like a nice guy. I've met him. I I, I just look at these people and I think you you can't possibly believe what you're saying, and that uh, for someone as uh, mm-hmm. you know naively wedded to enlightenment notions of, uh, you know, or kind of reasonable public square in which we debate things in good faith. It's it's pretty maddening. And uh, it. I, I wish we could get beyond this era, but I fear we will not. Well, uh, yeah, we, we all hope that. Uh, look, I, I feel uh, that the um, individuals are going to behave badly, but what is really even more worrisome than individuals is institutions being corrupted. Mm-hmm. And with uh, so the the list of you know de- despicable bottom feeders who have been participating in this outing of the whistleblower uh, effort online include um, many of the people that we just mentioned, as well as of course Don Jr. Mm-hmm. and uh, this fellow Jack Posobiec, mm-hmm. um, who um, was honored by being given a fellowship at. The Claremont Institute. Right. Unbelievable. Yep. And, you know, that is the thing that is even more worrisome than just that these people are out there on the Internet and they talk to each other and they reinforce each other, which is bad enough. But when 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 previously respectable institutions allow themselves to be corrupted this way, and I would include Fox News in that, too. Fox News always leaned right and it was right. a little bit trashy, but it wasn't 
you know, the, 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 it wasn't the state Pravda. news. It wasn't Pravda <laughs> until now, and now it is, and it's uh, it's it's very very worrisome. Um, well, I mean, it's it, we talked about it in I think our last show about the kind of the what I've called in a column the Gonzo politics right. of of the Republican protest in the House yeah. when mm-hmm. you know testimonies going on be, uh, in front of the House Intelligence Committee. Many of the people in the protest have the authority to go into that very <laughs> right. meeting, right. and yet instead they grandstand outside and pretend that there's a kind of Soviet process going on. Actually, one of them uh, is a representative who has the most appropriate name probably of anybody in Congress isn't it's Congressman Yoho and that was uh, yes, he was the one whose name I couldn't remember last week who yes. stood there and, and you know and, had and never said, been to the hearings and, and, yeah and, and and he was asked you know why why right. don't you go in he said I, I'm too busy I have right. I have very important things to do Gover- governing is hard playing to the cameras is easy yeah exactly and you know who wants to who wants hmm. to govern all right let us uh wrap up with um praise for people we normally don't agree with. Linda, go first. Well, I don't know that I would agree or disagree with her, but I'm going to point out an opinion piece that was in the November 6th issue of the Washington Post called Women Were the First Trump Whistleblowers. It's by Natasha Stoinoff, who I guess was one of the women who accused um, Donald Trump. And there is something I think interesting about this whole phenomenon. I mean, you know, it was one of the things that the evangelicals and others on the right ignored is this man's Uh, reprehensible behavior towards women. And I can remember uh, a good friend of mine once saying that you can often judge a country by the way it treats its women. Well, you can often judge a leader by the way uh, he treats his women. And so I I would commend this piece to people because they were sort of the canary in the mine shaft, warning us of of what was to come with this guy. Yeah, I'm not a libertarian, but I like having libertarians around because they keep people honest. They often uh, will dig into very kind of uh, high-minded proposals uh, proposed by the left and center left and actually say, well, what exactly would this do if you enacted this? Peter Suderman, who's a very smart libertarian at Reason Magazine, had a great piece, uh, I think just this morning, uh, titled Elizabeth Warren Wants to Raise Taxes by $26 trillion in which uh, he really digs into her proposals, looks at what they would really cost. Along the way, he just tosses out the little bit that Bernie Sanders has proposed a whopping $97.5 trillion worth of new government spending over the next decade. Uh, And this is, you know, if if the Democrats are really considering uh, electing uh, people who want to do these things, I think we, we at least better know what we're getting ourselves into. And so Peter's piece is, I think, very good for that. Excellent. That reminds me of the old line uh, Everett Dirksen talked about, you know, a billion here, a billion there. Pretty soon that adds up to real money. We're, <laughs> we're now we're up tens to trillions. Of trillions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The one that struck me uh, recently was someone that I've not been having fond thoughts about of late because of his stances on many things, and that's Hugh Hewitt. And yet in the Washington Post, he had an article talking of just a couple of days ago talking about how important the actual commentators are now, more so in some ways than the politicians, and how nice it would be if the, if the people who were commenting, the people in the media influenced the public enough that if they could come to some sort of consensus on whether the president needs to be impeached or removed, how wonderful that would be. 
And most of it was full of uh, claims that were, were not justified in any way. But I found one line in particular to be pretty good. He wrote, if one or two, or suddenly three or six, of the presently pro-Trump influencers, including both the prolific or the occasional, break and switch to the remove end of the axis, then the president will be in trouble. And I thought that is insightful, and in a very disturbing way, that you might have, and let's just put it out there, let's say it's Sean Hannity, that he comes on one night, looks in the camera and says, you know, I've looked in the mirror, I've looked in my conscience, I've, I've thought about the next generation, and I've realized here are the ways that Donald Trump has deceived us and even deceived me into deceiving you. That would change poll numbers. That's disturbing, but it's true. One or two key influencers could mean a whole lot. They're the ones who are least likely to change their minds at this point. They're all in. But I think Hugh had an, a good observation in that part of the article. Interesting. Well, I will now praise Saturday Night Live. Um, <laughs> they did a skit this past week uh, with the incomparable Catherine McKinnon playing um, Elizabeth Warren. And uh, they, they portray uh, a, a voter or a journalist saying, Senator Warren, um, you say that your Medicare for All plan will cost $25 trillion, but several economists say it could be as much as $34 trillion. And McKinnon, as Warren says, we're talking trillions. When the numbers are this big, they're just pretend. <laughs> <laughs> so she nailed Saturday Night Live it. She gets nailed it. it. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank you, one and all. Until next time. Oh, I have to do one more thing. Uh, and that, and the, thank you, Benjamin Parker, for reminding me to do this. Um, and that is, I want you all, if you can, to do us a favor. Please rate and review this podcast um, whenever you get a chance. Uh, it really helps to get the word out that we are here. And we're getting tremendous feedback already, but we can always use more. And uh, so It doesn't show you... up as rating ourselves. <laughs> oh, we definitely should do it. I oh, hadn't even oh, thought oh, of that. Oh, you're talking about <laughs> saying that to people. Okay, no, I thought no, you were no, telling no. us to do it. I no, 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 sorry. I'm, I'm asking the audience to kindly rate and review us uh, on iTunes or wherever else. And uh, also, be sure to subscribe. I mean, it's fine if you want to listen on the website or wherever. You know, if you want to listen at your computer, we don't object. But it's easy. If you just subscribe, it will pop up. Every time there's a new one, it will just pop up automatically on your feed. And so that's that's my public service announcement. Again, thanks one and all. Thanks, David, for joining us as our guest this You're week. Welcome. And thanks to everyone. And, David, good to see you in studio. Until next time. Bye.